What drove you to blow the whistle? If I didn't speak up, someone was going to die. It was a public interest story. I found myself having to put on a mask to hide my emotions so the patients couldn't read my face. I'd already seen countless people harmed. Some of the influencers were botched, but they continued to sell. This program's content is provided solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as medical, legal or financial advice. Views expressed are opinions only. Our discussions are general and not focused on specific companies or individuals unless explicitly mentioned. We strongly recommend consulting a qualified medical professional before contemplating any major or minor medical procedures. Be advised that some content discussed may be distressing. Discretion is advised. The hosts of this program believe all people should be able to access cosmetic surgery procedures free from judgment. Welcome to Surgery Secrets, Beauty's Dark Side. I'm Madison Johnstone and I'm here with Michael Fraser, your podcast hosts. Please follow us on Instagram and TikTok at operation.redress for more content and snippets from today's interview. If you're tuning in for the first time, this podcast explores the dark themes of the cosmetic and plastic surgery industry globally, with season one focusing on Australia. Now, some of these themes have already been touched on by the media in the past few years, but they deserve further exploration to get to the bottom of what's going wrong. The cosmetic surgery industry is in a state of reform in Australia, in part thanks to two brave nurses, Justin Nixon and Lauren Hewish, who blew the whistle on the Dr. Lanza clinics. We are very lucky to have Justin Nixon here with us today to talk all things whistleblowing. Thanks. It's great to be here, guys. Now, for those who are unaware or unfamiliar with the Dr. Lanza clinics, these clinics became the subject of a media investigation in 2021 and in 2022. There were allegations of safety and hygiene issues, as well as botched outcomes. What set this story apart from all the other botched cosmetic surgery stories, of which there are many, is that whistleblowers came forward and that these doctors and clinics had a prolific social media presence, with one doctor having 13 million followers on TikTok, and also that some recordings were leaked to the media. We're going to play you one of these recordings now. Never, ever, ever, not slightly ever, 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 ever admit to a patient that something's bad or wrong, because they'll use it against you a hundred times the rest of your life. You never tell a patient you're infected. No. You never tell the patient, I haven't got gowns, gloves, this, that. No, this is how we do it. Do not own up to nothing. Zero. Never, ever, ever, ever own up to anything. Now, that was Dr. Lanza allegedly leaving a staff memo for his practice staff. If you're interested in watching the full episodes, they are on YouTube for free. And these links are available on our link tree, which you can access via our Instagram. Now, with that overview, Michael, do you want to wind back the clock a bit? Justin, it was late at night. I remember your first call because Madison and I were working late. You called and you were concerned about the co-workers 
at where you worked at Dr. Lanza's being underpaid. Yeah, that's correct. You were concerned about many things that were going on in the practice. And I think the reason you called us is because of our existence in the wage underpayment space. I couldn't help but think it was as serious as you were saying it is, not just for the underpayments, but it was a public interest story. And I think you knew that. Yeah, that's and right. You'd been trying to get someone to listen and nobody would listen, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, by that stage, I'd already made numerous uh, notifications to um, various government agencies. Those notifications had already fallen on deaf ears. So I was reaching out and hoping that, you know, you guys would take me seriously and listen. And uh, I'm very thankful that you did. Yeah, it was a public interest story. And I think the story had to be told. And that's why we suggested that we talk to someone that we trust in journalism that could do the story justice. And I'm glad that you agreed to go on that journey and stand up for others. And so we made the call and the rest is history. So Justin, what drove you to blow the whistle? Yeah, so I had been a registered nurse. I worked as a registered nurse at Dr. Lanza's clinics for about 18 months. And during that time, uh, over that time, I just became more and more disenfranchised with um, my employment there. And I believed that if I didn't speak up, someone was going to die. I'd already seen countless people harmed. And yeah, I was shocked by what I saw. From where we sit, it seems like your fears were partially, at least partially well-founded, given that not long after you blew the whistle in the media, a patient of the Dr. Lancer clinics ended up in the ICU as a result of the cosmetic surgery that she had done. That's correct. So after the stories went to air, I spoke to APRA, the Australian health regulator, uh, made my concerns uh, widely known about all of the practitioners in the clinic and the practices that were occurring. And then I had explicitly stated, if you do not act, someone will likely die. Um, and then a week or so after, you have a patient fighting for their life in the ICU. Um, unsurprisingly, though, a lot of the other doctors were allowed to continue practicing for months after. Uh, so that was very concerning to me. So you are a whistleblower in the health sector and you've blown the whistle about your workplace. What kind of knowledge did you have? Like what was your role there? Like how did you see all those things? Like can we learn a bit more about what you were doing, what your day-to-day -day was like? Yeah, that's right. So my role at the Lanza Clinics was quite varied. I had done quite a lot of things in the business. Um, so I had worked in the operating room assisting the doctors with procedures. I had worked in aftercares, so seeing the results and talking the patients through their phase of recovery. I also worked as a cleaner, cleaning up after the surgeries. I'd also work interstate at some of the clinics as well. And I also worked in a sales capacity selling a lot of these surgeries, which is where a lot of the guilt uh, stems from. So uh, one day I could be selling the surgery and a week or two later, I'm seeing the, the patient on their journey, um, in the recovery bed. And this was long before COVID, but 
and sometimes the wounds had started to heal and so it wasn't really necessary to wear a mask but I found myself having to put on a mask to hide my emotions so the patients couldn't read my face of how horrified I was by what I was seeing. Um, that was really hard. Justin, it, it seems that your motivations for speaking up were essentially patient-centred about patient safety. Now, in Australia, our health regulator has something called mandatory notifications, which is essentially if someone sort of drifts from the, the training um, significantly that they went through it when they were becoming a medical professional, that they have an obligation to report uh, the conduct that they're seeing. Like at what point do you think your colleagues should be speaking up? Like what, what, what might they be seeing that you think that they should be reporting and when? Yeah, as you stated, which is correct, whenever you see a significant departure from appropriate or acceptable standards, that is grounds for a mandatory notification. Unfortunately, that's not something that we see in Australia. And there's been a long history of clinicians under-reporting. Uh, and that's something that's continued for quite a long time. But I'll just speak from my experience, from what I saw at the clinic. So we'd have uh, doctors not adequately draping or wearing gowns appropriately, maintaining a sterile field uh, that was concerning conduct, the, the consequences that would flow from that, which would be infections, uh, delayed wound healing, um, poor patient outcomes, um, doctors operating as well with theatre doors open. So again, back to the, the sterile field, that's a significant departure from acceptable standards. All of those things I've reported um, and said that these are these are massive departures from the acceptable standards. These are all things that should have been reported. Uh, unfortunately, no one did report these things besides um, initially, uh, other than Lauren Hewish and myself. It seems like you saw quite a bit before you reported it. Do you think you took too long to report the conduct? Yeah, uh, certainly there were circumstances there which we can unpack later as to why I didn't speak up. But, um, yeah, I, I think when I'd seen what I'd seen, there were a few things running through my mind, and that was that you know, Daniel Lanza himself was an institution. He was someone who was constantly in the media. He was this sort of figurehead of cosmetic surgery in Australia. And I had thought to myself, from what I'd seen, there were people getting maimed and butchered. And certainly there was a huge um, supply of patients that were disgruntled, that were unhappy, and that they had complained and tried to make their um, their voice heard. And then I thought, how many of these people, surely some have gone to the regulator and they've failed. And I'd also heard that many of the former staff who had worked there had also been horrified by what they'd seen. And so I thought, you know, perhaps people have tried and they've been unsuccessful. So if I'm going to make a notification, I've got to make sure that there's enough evidence to make sure that it's really going to um, have an impact. And so I really deliberated long and hard and I tried as hard as possible to get as many people to come forward. But looking back, certainly I probably did take too long, but I'm still glad that I did. The fact that you spoke up and what has come as a result of it is just truly amazing in the circumstances. Why do you think other healthcare providers in general, so separate to the lands of practice, don't speak up and don't report bad conduct. 
So that's a really interesting thing. Um, there's certainly plenty of journal articles and things like that uh, investigating and some of the, the reasons that I've read. Uh, one of the interesting explanations is kind of the the bystander effect. And so the bystander effect is this phenomenon where when something bad happens, if there are other people present, people automatically sort of have this intuitive sense that someone else is going to report. Furthermore, if you have other clinicians that are working there, there's another phenomenon called the diffusion of responsibility. It's closely linked with the bystander effect. But again, the more people you have that are witnessing something, uh, people often think there's less responsibility and that responsibility is diffused amongst the, the crowd that's um, watching the events transpire. So certainly that's an explanation, but there's other um, things. So if you speak out, there's fear of reprisals, fear that your um, reputation is going to be sullied, that you're not going to be employed. Um, so financial consequences, um, fear, intimidation, things like that. Um, and those are certainly motivating factors. Um, other factors as well, you, unfortunately, there's also clinicians that some that don't care for others and they're purely operating from a point of self-interest. Um, but I think most clinicians are good and they try to do the right thing, but sometimes they're afraid. And also there's significant barriers to speaking up as well. And you need uh, an approachable regulator and an appropriate system to make sure that your voice can be heard uh, and make sure that that's easy to do. Just on that with the notifications, how do you go about doing that? In Australia, you have the APRA. Um, so you go onto their website and thankfully, since the story's come out, they've certainly streamlined that process. However, it's far from perfect. Um, but you would go on the website and thankfully it's pretty much at the top of the page uh, that you can make a notification and, um, yeah, go from there. Do you think now after, because you've obviously been in the media quite a lot, people know who you are in this space, do you think, if you made a notification now to a regulator that they would listen to you better? Maybe now. However, if we go back again to the, the timeline, I appeared in the first documentary. I spoke with APRA. Then we have a patient uh, nearly dying in the ICU. I've spoken with APRA multiple times from there. Then again, I'm not sitting on information. I told APRA, hey, you need to have a look at the other practitioners. Again, they're continuing to flout the rules and engage in dangerous behavior um, and uploading this to social media for the world to see, um, operating with impunity. Um, and again, the regulator didn't take that seriously. Um, and then that again resulted in another damning documentary. Um, but I'd given the regulator a significant amount of lead time, uh, probably close to two months before that had happened. Um, so I don't know uh, what the regulator's view of me is or if they take me to be a serious person. Um, it's it's difficult and hard to say, um, given that I had spoken with them at length um, and provided my concerns um, for quite a long time. I mean, maybe I was too abrasive, but um, yeah, I don't know if they'd take me seriously. I would hope that they would listen to others. What do you learn about reporting like at university or through your training as a nurse? What do you actually learn about making a notification and reporting bad content, 
conduct because when you watch, you know, it's a very simplistic look, but when you watch like TV shows and stuff, the nurse is always presented as the patient advocate, the ultimate patient advocate. So what are you in the real world? What are you taught about making notification and when to make a notification as a nurse? Mm. So at my uni, we certainly learned that the nurse is definitely a patient advocate and that was pretty much one of the primary roles that we have as a nurse to always to advocate for the patient and that was certainly drilled into me at uni in terms of how to make a notification or the history of nurse whistleblowers that's not something that we actually ever sort of dug into um, but it was something that I always had an interest in and so if I think back um, I remember I was pretty young at the time but listening and, and reading about Tony Hoffman's story who um is probably the most famous whistleblower in Australia. Um, she blew the whistle on Jayant Patel, who was a, a rogue doctor who was connected with some 80 deaths at the Bundaberg Hospital and he'd completed some 1,400 operations of that 1,200 needed corrective procedures. Um, so that was something that was already, sort of already in the media zeitgeist but it was not something that was taught to me at uni and certainly I think some of the ethical units uh, that you do at uni could perhaps touch on this on the importance of you know how to make a notification how should you do it uh, I think that would be quite uh, instructive and it would be great for students to sort of go through that training to make sure that they have the tools necessary to speak up seems really bizarre that they don't already incorporate that or they didn't at least while you were there in the education well, they do, but they just kind of gloss over it, so to speak, yeah. Is there protections for people like you who want to speak up? No, I haven't been afforded any protections as a healthcare provider and I'm okay with that. I'm not asking to be um, afforded protections. Uh, that's fine and there's, there's good reasons for that. Certainly there are protections though uh, in terms of the workplace um, and employer agreements. That's my understanding. However, I think some of those would be difficult when, say, for the situation that I was in where my employer uh, was my boss, was also the doctor, owned the business, owned the establishment. Uh, it would be very difficult to remain employed having blown the whistle. In your case, you worked for Dr Lanza who owned the business. So if you were to whistleblow there, you would essentially have to blow the whistle on Dr Lanza to Dr Lanza. How could that even work? Yeah. Well, I'd certainly tried to have conversations with him and some of the doctors to raise my concerns and say, hey, can we do things another way? But essentially, um, you know, that was falling on deaf ears and I wasn't going to be taken seriously. Um, and I didn't think that these guys were going to respond. You said that, the, that there are no protections for people to whistleblow but I, I think APRA does have some protections in terms of like if they request of you to supply information or you do supply information, but it doesn't necessarily protect you if you have done anything wrong, right? So you, if you were a party to the wrongdoing and you reported it, it doesn't guarantee you any protection. It just means that in terms of supplying information and complying with them, you have certain protections. Is that sort of right? Yeah, that's correct. So in terms of supplying information and things like that, um, I would be obliged to provide that information to APRA. Um, but the clinic that I'd worked at 
interestingly enough, uh, all of the staff were asked to sign lengthy um, legal uh, forms saying that they would never disclose anything that happened at the company. And so certainly that was a contributing factor as to why a lot of people felt that they couldn't speak up because they felt like legally their hands were tied. Do you think that it's an industry-wide issue where you have the doctor who's your boss, essentially the owner of the business, the owner of the premise, do you think that's an industry-wide issue and would that be stopping people from having these discussions? Yeah, certainly in terms of cosmetic surgeons, from what I'm aware of, yes, that is industry-wide. In terms of plastics, it's a little bit different because they work in some of the major public hospitals. But I'm also aware of one instance with uh, another group of cosmetic surgeons where essentially a lot of the the staff members are from overseas. And so, again, there's the ability to rescind people's visas uh, if they speak up. So, yeah, there's definitely tools and mechanisms in place that these clinicians use to keep their staff silent and obedient. And what do you think needs to change? Like how how can we stamp this behaviour out? So what needs to change? Well, we need a regulator that when they see that these infractions take place, that they take it seriously and they need to send a message um, that they will not tolerate this kind of behaviour. And so hopefully that would make uh, practitioners think twice before they engage in uh, significant departures um, from the accepted standards because unfortunately what we've seen is that a lot of these practitioners will get a slap on the wrist and they can return to practice um, really you know, not long after. With limitations, right? Well, yeah, with limitations. But, you know, to me that's uh, probably not good enough. These people should not be in positions of trust. After the experience that you've been through in speaking up, would you say that others should speak up? Yes, I would say that others should speak up. Uh, I'm certainly glad that I have and I'm certainly glad that there's been positive change that stemmed from that. I still keep in touch with some of the former Lanza staff and you know, one of my friends from the clinic has expressed to me uh, that she was upset that she hadn't spoken up and you know, carries a significant amount of guilt with her to this day thinking, you know, why didn't I speak up? And you know, she carries a sense of shame with her forever, knowing that she remained silent. Is it too late to speak up? No. Um, you know, those people can still come forward and they certainly have a meaningful contribution um, and they have a lot to say and I would urge them to speak up. And is that an important message to any healthcare practitioners listening to this that maybe it's never too late to speak up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, things can't change if people don't know about it. So, yeah, I think we need to be proactive and we need to make sure that we do speak up, make our voices heard, and we need to advocate for the patients. Just finally on this sort of topic for now, a lot of people, and we've spoken to people from various parts of the world who have a distrust in the medical regulator, they say, I'm not going to report it because they don't do anything. Do you think there's any merit in the fact that by reporting what you have seen in writing, that there is at least a written record of the conduct for use at some point. If the regulator doesn't do anything, that you could go to the media, you could go to a lawyer, you could go somewhere else. Like it's a starting point. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so I would encourage any uh, practitioner or anyone with concerns, always document your concerns, make sure that there's an email chain. And so that way you can point back and hold people to account for their inaction and say, look, here are the several instances where I've tried, you know, to make sure that people can be heard. Yeah. And that seems like good advice for whistleblowers from all walks of life and not just in the healthcare profession. If it's okay with you, um, I'm sure that our listeners would love to hear more about how this has impacted you. So if we could take a more personal turn now, Mm -hmm. looking inwards, how did whistleblowing truly impact you as a person? Yeah, so whistleblowing has had a positive impact, I believe, um, for me. Um, It certainly helped me deal with the significant amount of guilt and shame that I carried having been sort of involved in that whole operation there. I'm glad that I was able to give a voice to the voiceless and to help people who had concerns to make sure that their voices could be heard finally. Um, So that certainly had um, a huge impact. Um, And as I was saying earlier, for my friends that have worked at the clinic and they didn't speak up, they are haunted and carry a significant amount of shame and guilt for not speaking up. And so, yeah, I consider myself lucky to not be burdened with that. However, I am still burdened by my experiences at the clinic. Has it impacted your work life, your home life, your family? Yes, it has. So I no longer work in the cosmetic surgery space or general medical. I now work as a psych nurse. Um, So certainly the, yeah, my work is forever changed. Um, And then in terms of my, my wife, she was incredibly supportive, but it was a huge strain um, during the time that everything occurred. Yep. And then, um, yeah, I've put a significant amount of time and energy to into this sort of enterprise to speak up for people. Can you break down the fears that you had or if you didn't have any, that's that's fine, but can you break down the fears that you did have before whistleblowing, while you were blowing the whistle and then after the fact? So my first fear that I had was that I wasn't going to be listened to. As I said earlier, the clinic had been running for close to 30 years and surely during that time there had been countless people, as we're seeing, there's now a class action with over a thousand and these people, they hadn't had their concerns taken seriously up until now. So I thought, what makes me so special? What's different? Who's going to listen to me? I'm just a nurse. Um, you know, I'm a nobody. So I thought that was, that was fear number one. Fear number two was that there's going to be significant consequences in terms of my employability, um, that I'm going to get smeared. People are going to cast aspersions on my name, and that's what happened, um, that my reputation will be destroyed and damaged. Um, and so, yeah, those were my biggest fears. And, yeah, then going through, some of those fears were well-founded. Um, the practice tried to silence me, and I was sued in the federal court unsuccessfully. They were trying to injunct the original Four Corners story. Is that correct? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, that's correct. So there was an injunction trying to silence the story and um, in that they were trying to say that uh, I was a poor character, that these were essentially, um, you know, bitter, disgruntled nurses who were out um, to make money 
and you know that was sort of motivated by malicious envy um all that kind of stuff you know pretty ugly so just on that how much money did you make from whistleblowing yeah so i've never made any money um from any of this which is really interesting a lot of people have this um pre like they think that i somehow have been remunerated for my time i haven't um yeah i've never been paid for an interview um never been paid for any of the speaking gigs that i've done um and it's taken a considerable amount of time personal time like hours every day that i've spent on this to try and help people so i've never asked for money um and i've never been given any money what about the regulator did the regulator pay you to whistleblow no the the regulators never paid me but i've made um you know i've spent a significant amount of time working with the regulator um or like liaising with them um in terms of stuff like that and stuff behind the scenes but um no i've never been paid well what support system did the regulator provide you if any so in terms of support yeah i was offered um counseling and yeah, that that's good, um, but it wasn't something that I was really interested in. Terms of where did APRA fall down? Um, they failed to listen and to act in an appropriate fashion um, when I had raised the alarm. So certainly that's where they'd fallen down. Um, they need to, if there is someone coming forth, we need to be listened to, and certainly they needed to act in a timely fashion. Um, and also there were several instances when I had expressed how exhausted I had been by, um, you know, making my concerns known and that they'd failed to act on it and then almost being told off by one of the investigators that they didn't like my tone. Um, that was very difficult um, to deal with. Do you think that's representative of maybe the organisation not having a good understanding of what someone like you is going through when they're whistleblowing because for you this is something you're living every day it's you've been living it for many months you've been there it's like you're in the battleground and they're removed from it so they can't fully appreciate what you're going through sure uh i don't think they need to actually understand what i'm going through so as a clinician when we see a potential danger or say a wound that's necrotizing or something like that you don't need to know what the patient's going through or even feel it from their perspective you just need to be able to see something that's a potential hazard and a danger and act appropriately and so a governing body you can say okay these people it's like say someone's speeding down the street um, you call the police and you say, hey, we've got someone who's hooning. They're going to run into a crowd or kill someone. Um, and they're flying down the street in a car. You need to act appropriately and respond to that. So, yeah, I don't think they need to understand um, the person that's making the call. Um, they just need to act in a timely fashion and certainly that would be more validating. I don't need them to understand me. That's actually an interesting analogy and we'd love to raise this with with the regulator when we get them on as well and ask them some questions. So you didn't get paid. You feel like you weren't really believed or taken seriously initially. Was it worth it to you in the end to blow the whistle? Yeah, absolutely. So it was definitely uh, worth it to me and I had been contacted by um, patients afterwards who had said thanks um, and finally they were able to feel like they would be heard now and so yeah absolutely even though it was frustrating uh, it's definitely worth it 
Well, some whistleblowers overseas and here in Australia think that, or actually they advocate for payment in exchange for whistleblowing, and that is in recognition of the extraordinary risk they take, the fact that their career can just be over in a second, hits to their reputation, the fact that they don't feel like that a corporation will trust them to not also blow the whistle on them. But also they feel like it might encourage others hesitant to blow the whistle to come forward as well. Do you, where do you sit in this argument? Yeah, so certainly I can recognise um, that there are legitimate arguments to be made for remunerating whistleblowers and especially those that take it at great personal cost. I was lucky in that I was able to transition to a new workplace and do okay. Um, but I'm also kind of thankful that I wasn't paid because when people try to cast aspersions on my character and say that I was motivated for money, I can say, you know, sincerely that I haven't been paid anything and yeah, that I'm not acting out of, I'm not trying to get money. I'm not trying to be self-aggrandizing. On that, did you spend any money? Yeah. So it's, it's cost me um, quite a fair bit in terms of when I add up like all the hours, the travel, um, yeah, it's, it's, it would be hard to put a figure, but it's a huge amount of time and energy that it's actually cost me. Um, it would be a lot. Well, we've been speaking to you since 2020. It's 2023. You, every time I speak to you, you seem active, always thinking of what next, who else can we help what more can be done yep at um i actually have found myself trying to discourage you which is probably the wrong thing but you've been so determined to just keep going now you've i suppose you've seen results yeah yeah i have seen results and so i'm pleased um i'm i'm pleased that arpa are finally listening uh i'm pleased with the advertising guidelines um I'm pleased now that it's become a conversation um, within the in the medical zeitgeist that we're now thinking about um, appropriate conduct and people are, you know, questioning what's going on in terms of their cosmetic and aesthetic uh, space. So I'm 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 pleased. Just for our listeners, one of the things that came out of you speaking up essentially was. Because uh, a big part of the the practice that you worked at was social media advertising, and these doctors were making so many videos a day it wasn't funny. The medical regulator has now put out as of one July these enforceable advertising rules, which are some of the strictest rules in the world. Yeah, and that's I believe one hundred percent that would not have happened had you not spoken up. So things like emojis are now banned. They can't use terms like mummy makeover. They can't use Barbie. They can't, they have to have like accurate before and afters. They can't use bikini shots. It's got to be essentially what you might expect from a medical professional is what is now being requested. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's really good. It's it's progress and I think patients are owed uh owed that much just to be communicated to in a respectful and clinical matter, um, manner. And so, 
you know, we don't, we'd ask that of clinicians when they're writing to a medical journal. And so I think that's good. You know, as we've said, there have been some laws that have changed or some rules that have been changed as a result of what was what started off as you and Lauren blowing the whistle. And that's great. But in terms of whistleblowing, what, especially in the medical space, when people's lives are at risk, what laws do you think need to change there? Yeah. So what laws need to change? Um, in terms of whistleblowing, I don't think that I need to be afforded any particular protections or anything like that. Um, however, I think when people come forward and if there has been something that's particularly damning and which we've seen the conduct of these practitioners that have nearly killed people that have put people's lives at risk, um, the regulator needs to send a strong and clear message that such conduct will not be tolerated and that these people are removed from positions of power uh, permanently. And so throughout this whole sort of experience, I kind of think that what we're going through now is akin to what was happening with the clergy 30 years ago where people had raised concerns about these sort of venerated members of the community um, and these concerns fell on deaf ears um, and it wasn't until more and more stories started to mount that we saw that these people aren't infallible, um, that they are models, that they do that they can cause significant and irreparable harm to people. And, you know, I think the analogue here is that we need to make sure that these people are removed from positions of power uh, if they are dangerous and predatory so that they cannot continue to harm people again. Um, unfortunately, what we've seen time and time again is the regulator will give a slap on the wrist and these people, medical practitioners in Australia, continue to go back and harm time and time again um, and it's just not good enough and so if they were to act strongly I think it would send a strong message and people would be more inclined to speak up if they felt that their concerns were going to be heard and they were going to be taken seriously. How powerful do you think advertising is in the cosmetic surgery space given you are a nurse in a cosmetic surgery clinic? You don't need to refer to any examples but do you think because it is what separates cosmetic surgery from other medical industries. The advertising is or was out of control. Some doctors claim it's educational. Do you think that it is educational or do you think that it, there, there was a problem and it was important that these new rules were brought in? Yeah, I don't think it was uh, educational. I think it's you know, our choices are largely shaped by the social context that we live in. Um, and yeah, I, I think it was presented under the guise of being educational, but the mechanics of the beauty industry were to constantly bombard the audience that they could just fix these things and the surgery, fix these things easily. And the surgery and the information that w went out totally mischaracterized the significance of the procedures. So the clinic that where I worked at, it was, hey, for many of the procedures, two days off work, two weeks off the gym, you'll be fine. But in actuality, it wasn't like that. Um, patients had significant downtime, significant pain, significant discomfort, um, and they are taking on significant risks. And influencers are used widely in the beauty industry. Should they be used in the medical industry um, and or for cosmetic surgery? 
Yeah, so it's quite interesting. Um, the influencer question is is big, and there's a lot to unpack there. Um, certainly, audience members they relate to influencers, and that's why they use their influential. Um, do they have a significant contribution that I think, in the end, um, helps patients? Probably not. I think the the consequence is overwhelmingly negative. And what was really interesting is that from what I'd seen, some of the influencers were botched, but they continued to sell online um, and spruik for the surgeons and selling others down the river, which I think is is quite interesting. And I would love to speak with them or just sort of ask them, you know, why did you continue to message your audience when you knew that these guys were bad and you had a bad experience? Uh, I find that fascinating. Do you think that these doctors have become influencers themselves? No specific doctor, just in general, that they get famous from social media posts. Do you think that that's an issue or do, do you not consider them influencers? Well, they are influencers, absolutely. And they certainly shaped the the context and sort of the Overton window, if you like, of what was acceptable um, online. And they certainly set the tone. Uh, they certainly influenced the tone within the the medical space and what was acceptable. And so there was the there was like this sort of glacial sort of drift that happened sort of over time, sort of I or the frog in the pot of water, I suppose. Um, and yeah, they they certainly did influence the tone. They influenced the prices. Um, yeah, they have significant influence um, and not necessarily positive. Is that influence a barrier for whistleblowers? Yeah, I think it is. Um, when you command the the media uh, and can wield the media, um, like the doctors at the clinic where I worked, it was a consideration. Like I thought, hey, I'm going to be put on blast on social media. I'll be crushed. And that, you know, the doctors adoring fans, you know, their acolytes will want to come after me. That was certainly a huge uh, consideration and certainly aspersions were cast on my name after the story went to air with um, derogatory comments made about me by the doctors and then other significant um, social media influencers that were doctors actually joined in on the pile on. Um, so yeah, that was that was pretty interesting. I remember that and what I thought was interesting is you largely had support and that should be something that whistleblowers potential whistleblowers should take away is that you had a large amount of support and i remember one of those doctors supporting the other doctors um, against you and very quickly getting shot down by a lot of people who put him in his place yeah and i think his comment might have disappeared yeah so that was quite affirming and it was nice to know that uh people were able to see the truth. So, yeah, that was quite good. Yeah, I think that's an important takeaway is that that fear of what people might do isn't necessarily how it will play out. And I think it's important that from from what I know of you and from what we've seen from dealing with other whistleblowers is that it's important that you are always very professional and factual in how you go about it. So if you hold your head high and just rely solely on evidence and what happened, it's very hard for anyone to challenge 
anything that you have said. Yeah, that's correct. So again, my advice to healthcare practitioners, when you do make a notification, make sure you have as much evidence to support your claim. Keep it as objective as possible. Um, don't try not to bring any emotion into it if you can. And yeah, don't put anything on social media. Don't mouth off or spout off. Just let the facts and the truth speak for itself. What did you do with your social media? So prior to the stories coming out, you knew that you were about to be everywhere in national news. You were front page news. Mm. So yeah, I've deleted all social media. Um, I'm no longer engaged on any of the um, social media um, platforms. Um, and I think that's been a good thing. Um, and even other sort of platforms like WhatsApp, I no longer use it um, as that was the primary means of communication um, at the clinic, but I've pretty much deleted all social media. Do you think that a potential healthcare whistleblower should stay off social media if they're going to whistleblow and go into the media? Is it like a good safeguard to have? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd encourage anyone who's thinking of coming forth to probably go dark um, and temporarily close or suspend your social media because certainly anything that you've put on is going to be pulled apart and they will certainly try and pull you apart and discredit you wherever they can. So the best thing you can do is remove any trace of yourself online. Um, you don't want to give them any further ammunition to pull you apart. Again, you want to keep this about the truth, about what you saw and the evidence there that's there to support your claims. And you don't want anyone trying to you know, assassinate your character. So don't give them anything. Is it also a protection for you as a potential whistleblower in terms of you're stressed, it's late at night, you've had a few wines and you're reading the comments and you can't help but respond. So if you don't have it, you don't have it there to make that mistake. Yeah, sure. That that's there as well. Um, but certainly reading and going through, um, the comments, um, these things, they don't blow over. It takes a lot of time. And so I would, I don't think people should be engaging or wasting unnecessary energy, um, having flame wars in the comments when you could be putting it towards something more constructive, um, like engaging with the regulator or other people that will actually listen and get things moving. Where do you see your advocacy, because you are still advocating mm. in the background for improved standards, what are you advocating for next and what, what do you want to see changed in the cosmetic surgery industry? So one of the things I've been advocating for for quite a while is that I do think that the regulators need to start engaging with whistleblowers. So although I've provided a statement on my time there, I've never actually been engaged in any capacity about, hey, Justin, what do you think we should change? How do we go about changing? Why do you think people didn't speak up? None of those questions I've actually ever answered before the regulator. And I find that like a missed opportunity and quite astounding, really. Um, so over the last 20 years, you have nurses like uh, Tony Hoffman or Lynn Ellsworthy who spoke about uh, nurses on the Nauru um, and human rights abuses. And so nurses have been instrumental in shaping sort of healthcare and making sure these media reports get out for patients. But to my knowledge, 
none of these whistleblowers have actually been engaged in any sort of reform to make sure that these things don't happen. Um, so to me, that's a, a missed opportunity. That's one thing that I'm advocating for. Another would be the universalization of standards. So the standards at the moment is just a patchwork mishmash across all the states in Australia, and they're not explicit enough. Um, yet there was certainly not enough um, in terms of the state of the fridges where, where I worked, where there was human fat um, kept inside sort of a standard fridge that you get from Kmart. Um, I'd reported that to one of the regulators in Queensland and they were like, well, there's nothing there to say that that's, that's wrong. Um, so that was, you know, eye-opening. Um, and then there was all these decanted fillers. Um, so with the intention of reusing fillers and things like that, again, again, there's nothing explicit to say that that's wrong or you could point to. And I have the emails with the various health regulators saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it. So that would be something to advocate for. And then as I've been saying, and I keep banging the same drum is that people who have acted in a predatory way uh, towards patients, they need to be removed. We need to send a strong message that that behavior is not going to be tolerated. So I suppose those are the main points for now. For our listeners, we, uh, after you spoke up, it triggered essentially a review of the cosmetic surgery industry in Australia. Yep. And that review had findings and it made a bunch of recommendations, which were pretty good. And it's been a year since that review ended. And there's something that I think you'll like. I'll just read you something from the medical regulator. It's just, this is from their press release. Cosmetic procedures, including Botox and other anti-wrinkle injections and fillers, will be under the spotlight in an expansion of our year-long crackdown on Australia's cosmetic surgery industry. Getting these services is not like getting a haircut. These procedures come with risk. We want to ensure the public knows what safe practice looks like and that the practitioners are doing everything necessary to keep the public safe. That last part was a quote from APRA CEO, Martin Fletcher. How do you feel to know that this is a new thing that they're doing off the back of what you started. Yeah, that's great. And um, yeah, I would agree with Martin there. It's certainly not something like getting a haircut. It does come with significant risk. And it's great to hear um, someone like the head of an organization speaking in that way and finally acknowledging um, the risk. And yeah, I'm pleased to hear that. Justin, if you had three things that you wanted to say to patients about getting cosmetic surgery, what would they be? Yeah, so three things before you pick a practitioner. Don't trust the Google reviews. Yeah, don't trust the Google reviews. Often they're sort of astroturfed. You, people at the clinic often write them. So where I worked at, the nurses would write a lot of the Google reviews and then would lean heavily on patients to try and get them to do the reviews. So the reviews are misleading. Um, so definitely don't rely on those. Two, get a second or third opinion from a surgeon. So make sure you do that. And number three, make sure that your surgery is taking place at a legitimate hospital and one with an overnight stay, not a shonky day hospital and definitely not in an office or yeah, make sure it's at a proper hospital when you have surgery. What are three tips that you would give to healthcare professionals? 
if you see something, say something. Don't just assume that someone's going to speak up or has already done it. Two, collect as much evidence as possible to support your claim. And three, when you make a report, put your name behind it. Unfortunately, people don't take anonymous claims seriously. Is there anything that you want to say that you haven't had the chance to say throughout your whistleblowing? Yeah, so I suppose one of the things that, one of the myths I want to dispel is that cosmetic surgery in Australia was something that was only done by sort of bougie, middle-class, upper-class people when really a significant cohort were from working-class backgrounds. Um, I feel strongly in advocating for these people because they may not, many of them didn't have the requisite tools to speak up or make their voices heard. Um, They're not trained or steeped in medical language to put forth a... um, an argument to say why their care was wrong or where it was lacking. All they know is, you know, I've been botched, but they they can't address all the antecedent factors that led to them having these complications. And, you know, I can make my voice heard and advocate for them and say, well, this is what actually happened. Uh, and it's interesting, sometimes I've been in an office workplace where sort of chatting in the morning and a staff member didn't know about my participation in it and made uh, disparaging remarks about, ah, who cares? You know, they got what they were asking for. They were just vain. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Um, all that sort of stuff. It's not productive. And I don't know, I think people make those remarks because then they can just push it aside to the too hard basket. Um, but people are entitled to adequate, safe medical care. Um, and I don't think that, yeah, we can look down our nose at people and say, oh, they've they've done something in what they perceive as the pursuit of vanity um, to be like, oh, well, then these people um, don't deserve adequate or proper medical care. Uh, that's just ridiculous. Thank you so much for coming here all the way from Tasmania to Queensland to speak to us today. Uh, what you have done is truly amazing. You should be so proud. Thanks. And thank you both for your support over the last three years. Um, without the help of you guys, no one would have listened to me and I would have just been another disgruntled nurse who would have just been uh, dismissed and not taken seriously. And so I'm really thankful to both of you that you've given me a path forward to make sure that we can advocate for all of these people. And yeah, I'm so pleased to have met you both and thank you for your help. And, and we hope that people around the world can listen to this and be inspired by your story because one person can start something that can be massive and affect lives in a positive way and that one person was you. Thanks. This episode was with Justin Nixon nurse whistleblower from the Dr. Lanza clinics. Thank you, Justin. Whistleblowing remains a risky act for many people in Australia. Generally speaking, whistleblowers can face retaliatory action in the form of civil prosecution, threats to their safety, job or career loss, and then in some cases, even criminal prosecution. Whistleblowers can be isolated from their friends and colleagues, and significant stress can be experienced at home. 
better systems and processes must be created to ensure whistleblower safety, especially in the healthcare sector given people's lives are at risk. Here at Surgery Secrets Beauty's Dark Side, we advocate for stronger whistleblower protections to encourage more reporting of poor conduct. Thank you, Justin, for your courage in speaking out when so many stayed silent and your continued advocacy for patient safety. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at operation.redress for updates, snippets, and shorts. We can't wait to introduce our next guest on the next episode.